We, we find our way back into 2 Samuel 7 now. And recall with me that last time where we left David, he had just received a promise from God, a covenant which uh, we know as the Davidic covenant. It established that David and his seed would be the kingly line in Israel forever. And God promised David in verses 15 and 16, but my mercy shall not depart away from him, that would be David's seed, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And this is huge. What promises made to David on this day? God promised that he would not remove his mercy from David like he removed it from Saul. And, and imagine how important this would have been to David. Remember that David was eyewitness to the rise and fall of King Saul. He watched as King Saul, uh, as king, failed to obey God, as king was rejected, his line was rejected, and then subsequently, a little while later, he was rejected, so that not only would his line not sit on the throne, but then God said, I'm going to cut short your own reign, Saul. David knew that Saul had then been rejected as king, so that his line, and even, even his godly son, Jonathan, had from, had removed from him the right to the throne of Israel. And David was put in Saul's place. And perhaps this, this event haunted David a little bit. Because Saul had been anointed king. Saul had been put on the throne. Now we know that it was not God's choice, that Saul was the people's choice, that Saul was a reflection of the heart of the people. And we talked about that, and we know that. And yet, David sees Saul anointed, put in place, sin and be rejected as king. Yet, it was a wonderful thing that he was given, the throne of Israel and Judah. But how long would that throne last? Would he, in some fit of selfishness and pride, be rejected by God as well? Would his son, in some fit of selfishness or pride or rebellion, be rejected by God as well? Would his children even have the comfort and security of knowing that there would be a kingly lineage? Would it even ever be worth preparing a child to take the throne? Now God answers these fears on this day, and indeed it would have been a blessed day for David. In response to David's pure heart and motives in desiring to build God a temple, in desiring to build God a house, though God refuses to let David do it, on moral grounds, because David had been a bloody man, a man of war, and God wanted his house to be associated with peace. Yet God promised that he indeed would build David a house so that there would never cease to be one from the line of David who would sit on the throne in Israel. We can rightly say that this was one of the very greatest moments in David's amazing life and career. The moment God promised by himself that he would establish David's kingdom forever. Such a great promise, such great blessings, as one might understand, were overwhelming to David. 
And this evening, as we walk through the remainder of 2 Samuel 7, we're going to consider David's response to the covenant which God has graciously made to him and to his posterity. And as we do so, we're going to consider some elements of divine blessing, understanding what it, what it was that David was blessed with here. And then as we seek to translate that desire of blessing into our own lives, what it is that we're seeking and how it is that we find it. We pick up in verse 18. And the scriptures tell us, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? The text tells us that having heard Nathan, remember Nathan is the one that told these things to David. Nathan, Nathan, David called Nathan in and said, I want to build God a house. Nathan said, Do what is in your heart. Nathan leaves that night. God speaks to Nathan and says, no, he may not build for me a house. Go tell him this. That's when he gave Nathan the Davidic covenant to tell then to David. So David hears this news from Nathan, and he leaves, and he, he, he arises, and it says he went in and sat before the Lord. He arose from his house, that beautiful house of Caesar, cedars within which he sat, and he went into the tabernacle which had been erected in Jerusalem. And he went into the presence of God, and he sat in a posture of humility and prayer. And he said these words, Who am I? Who am I? Have you ever been there with God? Have you ever been blessed by God, been given something? Maybe it's the day one of your children was born. You looked at that beautiful, healthy child, and you said, Lord, who am I? On that day that you were able to lead that person to the Lord, and as you lay at night unable to sleep because of the excitement that's in your heart and spirit, you say, Lord, who am I? Or the day that, that your faithfulness to your job was rewarded with a promotion, or you were blessed with, with a, a, a very needful gift, and you just stand before the Lord and you say, Lord, who am I? David says, who am I and what is my house that you would bring me here, God? Why would you choose these blessings for me? Why would you regard my house with such favor? Why am I king and not some other guy? Why will I be the one to have a, a, a lineage that continues when Saul was rejected? How am I better than Saul? Who am I when compared to any other man? Perhaps he even thought of Jonathan. Who am I? Jonathan was a great man too, and yet now Jonathan is dead, and I am getting these promises. Why have you just given me this promise of a perpetual throne? And David's thought process is self-evident here. He doesn't see his value. He, he doesn't regard any merit by which God should have singled him out for such blessings. He essentially says, Lord, I am nobody and no better than any other guy, so why me? And David continues in verse 19. He says this, And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? As David continues to marvel at his blessings, he recognizes that God's blessing is not just upon him. He says, Lord, it's enough that you would have blessed me with such a blessing as the throne, that you would have blessed me with your regard and your favor, but you have blessed my house. 
my household, my children, my posterity. God saw fit to bless his whole house for a great while to come. Well, that's the statement, right? A great while. It, is, it will be a great while. For, forever is a pretty great while, right? When God tells David, thy throne shall be established forever. What a promise. But notice that last statement. David says, and is this the manner of man? O Lord God. You notice there that it's God that's in capitals, not Lord. Now this is interesting. Normally when you're reading in your King James Bible, what do you find capitalized? You find Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And anytime you find all the, the name of God in all caps in your Bible, you know that the name behind it is that covenant name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on which person you ask. And so here we find, however, that in this declaration to the Lord God, and this is just a, a brief technical point for, for your uh, enjoyment and knowledge, whenever a person added the name Lord to Jehovah, they couldn't, they didn't want to put Lord, Lord in the text, so they changed Jehovah to God, but they made it all caps to let you know it's still the name of Jehovah, and then of course the name Lord there would be Adonai, and so whenever we see God in all caps, it is still the name Jehovah behind it, that covenant name of God. And remember that the names of God were important. The names of God were important in Israel, and they invoked a different name of God depending on the particular situation, right? We see that in Sunday school as we walk through, through Genesis, and we see Hagar give the Lord the name uh, that, that fits uh, her experience with him, and, and Jacob give the Lord a name, and, and they each have names that they call the Lord based upon how the Lord has revealed themselves to him. And here David says, you are my Lord, and you are Jehovah. And this phrase, is this the manner of man, has been interpreted different ways by different people and is a somewhat ambiguous phrase, both in the English and in the, in the Hebrew. It's a phrase that we can't really say there is one definitive meaning. We don't fully know where David was going with this. Uh, one interpretation carries this idea. David saying, can any man really receive such goodness from God? Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Is this the manner in which you are going to treat me, Lord God? Can any man really comprehend, receive such goodness? He's marveling at the uniqueness of his blessings. Another interpretation carries the idea of kind of this idea. Does any man act this way toward another man? In this case, David would be highlighting the reality that God here is being good and gracious and kind and and tremendously um, favorable to David in a way that no man would ever treat another man. In other words, elevating God well above man, right? This is this is this is God's blessing. This is this is a an act of God here. This is certainly no act that any man would do. Meaning to highlight how high God is above man, and that only the mind of a loving God would give such undeserving creatures such great blessings. A third interpretation comes from a slight change of wording with the phrase, turning it, not, uh, turning it away from a question and making it a statement. Again, textually, it's a valid way to interpret the text. And in this way, and this is the way that you would find it if you looked in several modern versions, modern translations, uh, it's translated, this is the law of man, O Lord God. This is the law of man, O Lord God. In this case, it would be 
David, rather than speculating, simply asserting God's goodness. In other words, something to the effect of, this is, this is how God is. God, this is just like you to do this. Isn't it just like our God to give us that which we don't deserve? Isn't it just like our God to pour out his love upon the unlovable? To pour out blessings upon the unblessable? To pour out life upon the dead? And while I can't tell you which gloss was truly intended by David, certainly one of them is right, the others are not. Maybe, maybe a different one altogether. Doctrinally and scripturally, all three are valid ideas, aren't they? Indeed, we can marvel that such a transcendent God would stoop to bless mere men. We read these words from David in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. We can likewise see that God is above any man, and that God's thoughts are not man's thoughts, and that through such an act of blessing and grace, God distinguishes himself from mere humanity. We read that, of course, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where the Bible says, God speaking through Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God certainly is not a man. God does not think like a man. Uh, God is not fickle like a man. And indeed, uh, God's ways are so great and far beyond our comprehension. And certainly we can recognize that, like that third interpretation or that third gloss, that third translation, it is just like God to, to do us good, isn't it? We sing that song, it's just like his great love. It's just like Jesus to roll the stone away, right? It's just like Jesus to keep me day by day. When God declared his goodness to Moses, and he passed by Moses, this is how he declared himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He goes on to talk about his justice, and certainly his justice is just as much a part of who he is as his mercy. And I don't want to minimize that this evening, but what David is experiencing on this day that we're reading about, what he is experiencing on this day is the great favor of God. So regardless of which way we interpret these words of David, uh, these three ways that we have mentioned at least all have strong precedent in the word of God and all are doctrinally possible. And David continues in verse 20, he says this, And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. What more can I say, David asks? He is speechless. How can I, David says, describe any better what this means to me, God? How can I describe the wonder of this blessing? How can I describe the unworthiness of my heart, the unworthiness of who I am for what you have just done for me? How can I describe how humbling your goodness is? David says, there's no words, God. I can't express, I cannot form the words to express what this means to me 
and, and how marvelous this is, but God, you know what's in my heart. Have you ever been there? Where you're so thankful to God that you can't really tell him, you can't express it. All you can say is, Lord, you know. There are certain joys in the Lord which can only be described by calling them indescribable. David would write in Psalm 16, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The majority of this world, Christian, will never know the fullness of joy that comes from being filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit's power. Even many in the church in this age of Christian immaturity and apathy will never fully realize the indescribable joys of being completely yielded to the Lord and having forfeited every right to God, walking in intimate fellowship with Him. We sang that song this evening, Breathe on me, breath of God. Could you feel the desire in, this, in the hymn writer? to be yielded to the Lord in that, that he asks, as he asks God to purge him from this world, to dim this world before him, that he and the Lord would will one will. What a beautiful thought. And when we're there, there is indescribable joy. That place where you can say, Lord, thou knowest thy servant. It is in this place that the blessings of, of God truly flow like rivers of oil. It is in this place that the peace of God truly resides. It is in this place that the human soul stands speechless, unable to form in thought or in word the extent of the peace and the contentment and the joy that is found in the Lord. And that's where David is on this day. We then read in verse 21, David says, For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these things, these great things, excuse me, to make thy servant know them. David admits that his current happy state is not sourced in his own goodness. One finds that the closer one walks with the Lord and the deeper one's fellowship with the Almighty, the less worthy one recognizes he is of God's blessings. And that's okay. Because God doesn't bless us because we're worthy. Did you know that? You can't earn God's blessings. Just as we talked about with the Lord's table this evening, when we recognize in 1 Corinthians 11 that that phrase, whoso partaketh unworthily is guilty of the body and the blood, is not about my worthiness. It's about the manner in which I partake. We recognize that God doesn't bless us because of us. Much rather, David expresses God's motivation for his goodness as for thy word's sake and according to thine own heart. God does as he pleases and it pleased him to bless the faith and obedience of this humble man. 
Now we find a slightly different rendition of David's remarks, of David's prayer, in the parallel passage found in 1 Chronicles 17. Uh, 1 Chronicles 17 gives the same account as we find throughout much of 2 Samuel. You can go to 1 Chronicles and you can see the same account. But there's some slight variations from time to time, and when those come up, I try to highlight them and explain them a little bit. And we see a slight variation to this prayer in 1 Chronicles 17, where we read David say in verse 19, O Lord, for thy servant's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. Now, in this verse, the text replaces for thy word's sake, as we saw in 2 Samuel, with for thy servant's sake, here in 1 Chronicles now, this should not confuse us, nor should this threaten us. This is not a contradiction in our Bibles by any means. We rather find in these two passages, and this is a biblical point of interpretation that you should, that you should glean and that you should always take into the Scriptures. When we find two passages that are intended to be the same, or a quotation one of the other, but there are differences, those differences form the boundaries of our interpretation. They form the boundaries through which we are able to interpret what is being said here. Now we've already found in our study that the writers of the Chronicles were different from the writers of Samuel and Kings. The writers of the Chronicles were prone to write interpretively. In other words, they were prone not necessarily to write verbatim what was said at the time, but rather they were prone to give their interpretation of what was meant at the time. And this is a very Jewish thing. <laughs> it's a very Jewish thing for the Jewish writers to write in a way where instead of giving you verbatim what was said, they give you what was meant. And we're not comfortable with that as, uh, as those who, who love and study the Word of God necessarily because we want to know what God has said and we want to allow the Holy Spirit to tell us what was meant as we recognize what was said. But here we find in, in Chronicles, very likely, a, a bit of an interpretation of what David was saying when he said in, in 2 Samuel 7.21, For thy words sake. And as both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and we know that the word of God cannot be broken, that it is infallible, that it is um, perfectly preserved in the original Greek and Hebrew, uh, oh, it was inspired and infallible in the original Greek and Hebrew and perfectly preserved throughout the generations in the original languages. And then we have a, a, a good interpretation of it today. As we recognize these things, we rest in the fact that these two statements, while different, combine to form one meaning. In this case, David recognizes that God's actions in blessing him with this covenant, have been done for the sake of God's word. But then he also says, for the sake of thy servant. So as we consider these thoughts, we recognize that there was probably a promise given. And that David is regarding this promise. It was God's word given to God's servant. So for God's word's sake, for God's servant's sake, they're one and the same. It's the word given to the servant. Now the question then becomes, who is the servant for whose sake David receives this blessing? Well, again, there are a couple of theories out there. Some say um, Judah, the promise given by Israel in Genesis 49 that the scepter would never depart from Judah. 
Some say Samuel, because indeed it was Samuel who was the one that God said David will become king. I lean toward the fact that it's David himself. Seems most likely that David says, for thy word's sake to thy servant, that you are doing this because you have promised this to me. You are doing this for the very sake of your good pleasure, enabled by David's faith. And all of this greatness of God on David's behalf was the result. The blessing inspired David. And in verse 22, he says this, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David's happy state reminded him that there is no God like our God. And think about that with me. Moses recounted his previous words unto God in Deuteronomy 3.24, and Moses said this, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand, for what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might. As Hannah rejoiced in the birth of her son Samuel after she had been barren, she prays to the Lord in 1 Samuel 2.2, and she says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. And David himself would muse in Psalm 86, verse 8. He would say, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. The God of the Bible is not like any other God the men of this earth have sought to worship or have conjured in their minds. He is not some fickle God that's driven by emotions or manipulated by men. The God of the Bible does not operate on some petty standard of merit. God created this world. He works in this world and he does so according to his rules and according to his good pleasure. If you truly want to see the difference between the God of the Bible and the false gods of this world, the God of Islam or the God of uh, of Judaism and the false, or, uh, the, the false rejection of Christ in Judaism, uh, or of the Hindus, or of the Mormons, or of the Jehovah's Witness, or even many who would call themselves Christian, uh, but have formed a different God other than the God of the Bible. You really need look no further than Jesus Christ. What other God among the masses of man-made deities satisfies perfect holiness and justice while simultaneously offering mankind grace? What other God among the pantheon of false gods gives of himself to purchase back the souls of those who have utterly rejected him? What other God among the gods died for the sins of his creation and rose again in victory over the grave, thus allowing his followers to be free, not just to go to an eternal place of, of rest called heaven, but to be free from the guilt of sin in this life, free from the obligation of works in this life, and offers instead a life of joy and peace. You find me any God drawn from the imaginations of men who would possibly do as the God of the Bible does. You won't find him. You find me a God from the imaginations of men who does not demand obedience and works as a condition of a man's salvation. You find me a God among the cesspool of false deities whose words are like the words and whose works are like the works of our God. You won't find him. 
because there's no God like our God. And that's what David says here. Is there any God like our God? Indeed, there is not. David goes one step further as he continues in verses 23 to 25. He says, And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. See, not only does the promise of a perpetual throne assure David his own mark upon the rest of history, But by virtue of the fact that God promises to David, God promises David a perpetual throne in Israel. Do you know what else that means? Israel must have a perpetual throne. That Israel must have a place in forever. As God, for no reason other than his love and good pleasure, chose Abraham and Isaac and Israel and redeemed them from all trouble and made great promises of which we have spoken before, the house of David is not established except the nation of Israel is established as well. We could preach several other messages about what this teaches us about Israel. It reminds us that God still has a plan for national Israel. It reminds us of why Jesus' lineage as the son of David is so important. It reminds us that we as the church of God through Christ are a part of something much bigger. I've preached many of these sorts of messages, even just recently. When I was in our Galatians series, I preached on these. Uh, In the the Covenants messages, I preached on these. Um, Even in Luke a little bit, I've preached on Jesus as the son of David. But I hit on, uh, since I hit on all of those not too long ago, I'm not going to park on them tonight. Of course, if you're interested in them, all of these messages are up on LegacyBaptistChurch.net as well as on YouTube. Not all of them are on YouTube, but they're all on LegacyBaptistChurch.net. David's final remarks are found in verses 26 through 29. Declarations of both request and faith that God's promises will surely come to pass. And he says this, And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hath revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. Therefore hast thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true. And thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. David says, God, you've made the promise. I trust the promise. I believe it. And that's important. We'll come back to that. Now let it come to pass. The promises are mine. I see them. I'm claiming them. Let them come to pass. Three points of application as we close this evening that I would like us to draw from David's interaction with the Lord and prayer to the Lord here. Point number one about God's blessings. We are understanding 
God's blessings this evening. Point number one, understand that you don't deserve God's blessings. We know this, but do we really understand this? If we're not careful, and and this is, if I can um, say it to you this way, this is just being drawn from my own heart. I don't know, maybe, maybe you all have this down, but I don't. Because when good things happen, when I see the blessings of the Lord, somehow I always try in my selfish, fleshly heart to connect it to something I've done, to some merit of my own. Lord, why would you bless me? Let me find out why so I can reproduce it. If we're not careful and we look around at the world around us and we read those portions of the Bible which charm us most and we begin to feel that we are more than what we are, We conveniently forget about those little sins of the heart which secretly hide in the dark corners. We commend ourselves that we are not as bad as so-and-so or such-and-such. And then when God's blessings come, we outwardly profess our humble thanksgiving while inwardly commending our own selves on a job well done. And again, this this is your pastor exhibiting my own foibles here. But David, when he heard the blessing of the Lord upon him, he sat before the Lord in humble worship and he asked, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? Indeed, every man who sees himself for who he truly is in light of God's holiness can say nothing else but who who am I? When Isaiah was confronted with the glory of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 and he saw the cherubim uh, above the, the throne, And they were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah first said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When the angel appeared unto Daniel, radiating the glory of the Lord to declare him the will of the Lord, the Bible says Daniel fell over as dead at the glory of the Lord. God gives us grace to understand Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. May God help us to understand just how short we've fallen of his glory and how much we need him even to be blessed by him. See, because we don't deserve God's blessings. And if by God's grace we can come to this realization, then when God's blessings come, and come they will if we are exercising faith, we will have the proper response. Secondly, understand how it is that God is blessing you. I'd like to take us a step farther in point two. This is important. There was a physical aspect to the blessings of of David. And we see throughout the Old Testament and New that there are, are oftentimes... Uh, physical aspects to the blessings of God. As we see Abraham to be a man of wealth and of prosperity, and Job to be a man of wealth and prosperity, and David to be a man who received his kingdom in great honor. And yet, uh, we see nothing in Scripture that promises us physical prosperity, do we? And in fact, oftentimes it's quite the opposite. Jesus Christ, all throughout his teaching to his disciples, said, Marvel not if the world hates you. The scriptures tell us that if we suffer with him, we shall surely live with him. And in fact, all of the gospels and the epistles anticipate suffering to those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so it's important for us to understand that while there was a physical aspect to God's blessing upon David, the true blessing itself in each of these covenants and all of these blessings, the, the true focal point of all of these blessings were spiritual, not physical. And this is the very characteristic of the blessings of God. It may be that the blessings of God will bring some level of physical and material prosperity. In this culture, in this nation, where we are free to serve the Lord according to our own conscience, still mostly, sort of, with most of us as far as our day-to-day is concerned, because we are free to serve the Lord according to the dictates of our own conscience, doing so can bring us to a place of natural prosperity. Perhaps some of you read through Proverbs this last month as you were challenged to do. And maybe as you were munching on that Twix this morning because you had done a good job at reading through all of the Proverbs in this past month, you you thought back on this month and you said, wow, you know, in the Proverbs, there's a lot of really good wisdom. There's a lot of really helpful day-to-day stuff. There's a lot of stuff about the fool and the wise man and guarding our eyes and guarding our ears and and, and what to say and what not to say and how to deport ourselves in this life and how to live and how to act and how to work and and, and how to treat others. It teaches us about anger. It teaches us about listening. It teaches us about virtue. It teaches us about integrity. It teaches us about work ethic. It teaches us about initiative. All of these tremendous lessons. And if you put all of those into practice, if you take the word of God and the wisdom of of God and you assimilate it into your life in a country that allows you to live according to the dictates of your own conscience that will not persecute you for following this book, there will be prosperity. No doubt. But if you're in Syria, surrounded by Muslims, and you claim the name of Christ, and you live by this book, You're fleeing for your life. Your house is burned to the ground. You can't get a job. Your family disowns you. That's the reality of of living this life in a place where the word of God is not regarded. And so it may be that the physical blessings of God will come. But in the least, living by the precepts of the word of God... We'll bring a general health of mind, but but this is not where the Christian blessings lie. Don't allow the health and wealth preachers to fool you. This is not where the blessings of the Christian life lie. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, we read this. Paul speaking. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We find here that the believer has been blessed with spiritual blessings in Christ. That in Christ we are complete. That in Christ we are inheritors of every blessing. That in Christ we have access to every blessing through the Spirit of God who is within us. And when we speak of seeking God's blessings, we are not speaking of some nebulous term, nor are we speaking of money and things Yes, it might be that God has something unique planned for you in this life, but it is not the primary focus of the blessings of God. In Christ, we are a blessed people, and we can receive the blessing of freedom from guilt, freedom from sin, the capacity to be filled with the Spirit of God and to live this life in a manner that pleases Him, and that is blessing. Consider how Paul continues speaking of this blessing in verses 7 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. How many times did you see in him, in Christ, in himself, in that passage? It's everywhere, because all of our blessings are rooted in Christ. But did you see all of the things that this passage says that we have? Redemption purchased through the blood of Christ. Forgiveness of sin through the atoning work of Christ. Your election assured unto eternal holiness. Your adoption into the family of God. A future home in heaven. These are the blessings of God. Whether in this life or the next, the spiritual blessings you have on a daily basis are rooted in the finished work of Christ and are beyond the ability of our our feeble minds to reckon. Forget whether you have money or a big house or nice cars or clothes or good looks or great talents. Those are nice things and indeed they are good gifts that come from above. Make no mistake. God is good. But those things pale in comparison to the blessings which are ours in Christ. And do you see the parallels to David? David understood full well that God's blessings to him were rooted in God's word. It's interesting that he would use that phrase, thy word, right? Because Jesus Christ is the word of God. David even seems to recognize that it is God himself through whom these blessings flow. The very same way we enjoy our blessings today, through God's word, the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, and according to God's good pleasure. Third and final point this evening. First, understand that you don't deserve God's blessings. Second, understand how it is that God is blessing you in Christ, spiritually. That's that's the true blessing. Third, and you need to understand this, understand that God's blessings are always, always, always enabled, activated, that the, the path to God's blessing, that the means by which those blessings flow is always faith. Always faith. Whether we speak of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Jesus, Paul, Peter, every blessing God has ever given has been given to those who live by faith. Every spiritual blessing ever meted out has been meted out in accordance with a man's or woman's faith. God promises to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, the nation of Israel, Joshua, Jonathan, David, Daniel, Jesus Christ, Peter, Paul, and you and I. And every one of these promises given by the grace of God is made in his unchanging word. Yet the string that connects all of the promises received by God throughout the ages is not that these men and women acted in a manner that was worthy of God's notice. It's not that they rose to the top of the religious self-righteous heap. Rather, they were men who trusted in a manner that was worthy of God's notice. 
And every time you find a man or a woman in the Bible who is blessed, do you know what you can always find? You can always find faith. You will always find faith. Was Rahab the harlot spared from the destruction of Jericho because of the content of her character? Rahab the harlot, right? It wasn't the content of her character that spared her in that day. What was it? It's her faith. Was Nineveh the great city in the days of Jonah spared for their stellar reputation and righteousness among the cities of this world? Ah. Uh-uh. Jonah went in to preach in 40 days the city will be destroyed by God divinely. But they were spared because they responded in faith to the word of God. Faith being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith being when you look at the word of God and you say, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not necessarily what I would want. It's not necessarily what I think is reasonable. But God, it's what you say, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to believe it. And they step out on faith and they receive God's blessings. If you have been blessed in any way today, it is because of faith. If you lack any blessing today, it's not a reflection upon the content of your character or the work of your hand as much as it is a reflection of your faith or lack thereof. A lack of faith which maybe causes you to err in action or in character. A lack of faith which maybe stunts God's capacity to bless you as he otherwise might desire. And as we consider faith, we take these truths in two directions, completely distinct but inseparable. We spoke this morning of the gospel, and we recognize all the way back to Abraham that Abram believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That Abraham put his faith in the revealed word of God, and the faith in the revealed word of God brought about in him the condition wherewith God was able to declare him righteous. That's justification. And in the, in the context of salvation, we access that by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he was buried, uh, that he died uh, on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. And as we place our faith in that, God responds to our faith with justification. But then there's also that context of sanctification, right? That's everything else. That's after we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have a life to live. And every day you are confronted with the question of faith. Are you going to live this day, this hour, this moment according to the word of God, submitted to the spirit of God, whereby we will not walk in the flesh and allow the spirit of God to flow through us? Will we walk as those that have come before us walked? Laying aside every weight, as the scriptures tell us, because we're in, we have such a great cloud of witnesses. Run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of what? Our faith. The author and finisher of our faith. And that's the privilege that we have every day to open this book, to identify God's expectations, to identify that which God has asked us to do and to step out in faith and to do it, and in doing so, to reap the fullest of the blessings of God. Understand that you don't deserve God's blessings. Understand how it is that God is blessing you. And understand that God's blessings are enabled by faith. There's no other way that they come. 
So may God help us as we see in this passage with David. David hears the promises of God. He rejoices in the promises of God. And then as he finishes the chapter, he says, And now, O Lord God, verse 28, Thou art that God, and thy words be true. I believe it, God, and may it be unto me according to thy promises. Let's close in prayer.